0: Grab a seat, and uh, this—you grab a seat. I want to tell you about a friend of mine from college. His name was Tommy, and uh, Tommy came in uh, to Wabash a year after I did, and he was a teammate on the football team, and we played the same position, and we got to spend a lot of time together. And uh, right away, I really liked Tommy. We became good friends. There was something about his personality that was magnetic and um, just always enjoyed being around him, spending time with him. For the first two years of Tommy's um, time at Wabash, it was very evident that Tommy had come to Wabash and he didn't know Jesus. He didn't have a relationship with Jesus. And um, even in, you know, these early college days, it was evident that uh, Tommy didn't really have an interest or care to really know Jesus. And so it was a surprise to me as uh, his sophomore year was coming to an end that um, he had told me what his summer plans were and he was going to go be a Christian counselor at a Christian kids' camp, Kancut uh, camps, if you 're familiar with those camps out of missouri and um, and why it was surprising for me that Tommy would go be a christian uh, counselor at a Christian kids camp because Tommy had yet to know, come to know Christ himself. And yet God in his sovereignty took Tommy down to these camps. And um, I remember the next fall rolled around and Tommy called me as he got back to campus. And he, he said, hey, can I come over? And um, he came to my house and he sat at our, the dining room table and uh, we were talking there. And um, right away, Tommy said, hey, I just want you to know um, Jesus Christ is Lord of my life. And um I, I've, I mean, we were down at camp and he just like smack dab, just grabbed my life, slapped me in the face, just grabbed a hold of me. And, uh, and I sat there. If you've ever been in a situation like this, you're rejoicing and you're fired up and you don't really know what to say. And uh, I'll be honest, like part of my heart wondered, like, is this just a spiritual high of him coming off some summer experience? And then as he kept talking, it became very evident that this was not a spiritual high. Um, There was something fundamentally different about him. Um, It it, it wasn't a polished-up version of an old life. It was a completely new life. And um, as he kind of got back onto campus and around the football team, I think it became evident to everyone, man, (laughs) something, something is radically different here. And uh, to this day, it's not a spiritual high. Uh, Years and years later, he continues to walk with Jesus Christ as Lord of his life. And uh, Tommy's story is an important one because it illustrates uh, what we call kind of this churchy word we call in Christian words, what conversion is. What does it mean to be converted? What does it mean to get saved? What does it mean uh, to die to an old life and be resurrected into a completely new one? And uh, if you have a Bible, get it out to Acts chapter 9, and um, if you need a Bible under a seat nearby, you'll find a Bible under one of those chairs, but Acts chapter 9 is one of the most powerful um, stories, one of the most famous stories on conversion that we'll see in all of Scripture, one of the most famous stories of someone being converted uh, really in the history of all of the church. Um, this story of this person coming to know Jesus Christ, is uh, it's, it's more famous in church history than Chuck Colson coming to know Jesus. So parents, tell your kids who Chuck Colson is on the way home. It's uh, more famous even in church history than Johnny Cash making a proclamation of Jesus. Parents, introduce your kids to some Johnny Cash on the way home. Um, this story right here is... Um, it's one of the most well-known conversion stories because of the, the powerful transformation of the old life to the new life that it illustrates. But even more than that, how, what God was doing for the trajectory of the history of the church moving forward through the man who will be converted. We've been introduced to this man already in the book of Acts. It's a guy by the name of Saul of Tarsus. And what we know of Saul up to this point, if you've studied the Bible before, you have a bit of a privilege to know where the story goes. But if you haven't, you're in for an awesome ride right now. Because what you know of Saul so far is um, when the first Christian was murdered for being a Christian, it was this Saul guy who was standing there watching over the garments that were laid there that allowed those doing the stoning to throw the stone with greater velocity to kill Stephen. Uh, It's Saul who we've seen is leading the charge as the chief persecution officer of the followers of Jesus in this this new movement of Jesus. And now something's going to happen to Saul today. And I think it's really important that we understand what's going to happen to Saul today is so radically transformative. Saul doesn't just go from hating Christians and persecuting them, to losing interest and in moving on to something else. Saul is the epitome of a life 180. Saul is the epitome of the opposite of that which he once was because of what Christ has come in and done what Christ does. And this is the story we're going to see today. Now, what I think so cool is as we walk through Saul's journey of um, um, submitting his life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ... In this story, is such an important story for us because some of us walk in here today and um, you're just, you just know, you're, you don't know Jesus. You know that walking in, you wouldn't identify as a Christian. Um, you, you hear Christians use terms like getting saved or being converted and you're like, what do I need to be converted from and what do I need to be saved from? Um, the hope is that it's this story today that God would use in your heart to show you, to teach you what it is that we believe God says we need to be saved from. Others of us come in here, and we, we know this story. In fact, if you've been in church any amount of time at all, you've probably heard this story preached on over and over and over again. My prayer today, though, as we study this, that maybe for some of us who have a really extensive church pedigree, but but um, we know it all up here, but it's never gripped here, may today be the day it goes from here to here, that it really grips our heart. And we understand that following after Jesus is more than just an intellectual ascent of our mind, but it's a complete capturing of our heart that says, yes, Lord, you are Lord. And you get to call the shots. And then others of us in here, we get to see as part of Saul's story. If you hear, you know you know Jesus. You know it's gone from here to here, and he is your Lord, and he is everything. It's so cool to see how God goes about using his followers in the story of this awesome conversion story that we're going to see. And so as we study this, this journey of what it means to cross over from death to life, from old life to new life, um, let's ask for God's help to speak to us through his word this morning. God, come now and help us. Um, God, please, um, would, your, uh, would, this, would, would, would Your Word be preached? Would it say, Lord, would I say what it says, and would I say it how You want me to say it? Um, God, would, um, um, would, would Your Word just be lifted high to really just encourage and exhort our hearts to teach us and instruct us today? Um, God, I beg for Your presence to do what only Your presence can do. Um, in us this morning as we teach your word and so help us now and I pray these things in Jesus name amen Acts chapter 9 beginning in verse 1 the first two words say this but Saul now, anytime you see a chapter in the Bible, start with but, but Saul, but we got to know there's something that's connected here, and what are we just coming out of in Acts chapter 8? Well, Acts chapter 8, you're seeing the expansion of the gospel ministry outside of Jerusalem into Samaria, and the gospel is flourishing. People are getting saved. Revival is going, and, and we've seen this guy named Philip who kind of led the gospel expansion into Samaria, and then God calls him away from there down to this encounter with the Ethiopian eunuch. The ethiopian gets saved they, philip baptizes the ethiopian and then philip gets teleported to a new town coolest chapter in the bible i think and now um as we go from kind of just this awesome picture of what god is doing by the power of his spirit luke is going to call us back to okay not but saul now let me let me tell you what let me remind you of this guy but saul But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, he went to the high priest and he asked for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And so we get this picture of this Saul guy. And what I love about what Luke does here in the story of Saul's conversion is he reminds us of the old life. This is, this is Saul in his BC, before Christ's days. Um, If his mouth was open, as easy as it was to inhale and exhale breath, if his mouth was open, he was breathing out murderous threats against Jesus' followers. He hated, you guys got to understand, he hated Jesus and he hated anything associated with Jesus. And this hatred for Christ and the followers of Christ has led him to uh, be so singularly focused that the mission of his life was to make Jesus' followers suffer. Make them pay. So much so that he goes, you know, I've been doing this here in Jerusalem. Um, High priest, please, letters. Letters, please. Letters, please. Letters for what? Let me go to other cities. Let me go to other cities and do what I've been doing here. Let me go to Damascus. And I'll go into the synagogues there. I'll go north to Damascus and let me go into the synagogues there. And if I find any of these Christians, here's what I'll do. I'll bring them back. I'll bind them. And I'll bring them back to Jerusalem so that they can stand before you. And then let's make them pay. Let's make them lose their life. Let's make them go to prison. This is what Saul is setting out to do because Saul in his B.C. days, Saul in his before Christ days is just Um, defined by a hatred, a deep, deep hatred and a violent hatred towards Jesus and his people. And in verses 1 and 2 highlight this B.C. picture of Saul. Now, um, before we're too hard on Saul, let me just give us our first point, because I think it's important for us to start here at the journey of what in the world do we need to be saved from an old life. Uh, Point number one is this. We are dead in sin, and we're defined by sin before we know Christ. We're dead and sin and defined by sin before Christ. Verses 1 and 2 give us a snapshot of the B.C. picture of Saul. And we all got to acknowledge, and in here, we all have to acknowledge this. It's so important that we acknowledge this. If we don't acknowledge this, we'll never see a need for a good news message. We all have to acknowledge that we have a B.C. part of our story. We have a before Christ part of our story. Now, even if you've grown up in the church, and even if you say, man, I've always been a Christian, none of us are born Christians. We may have been born into a Christian family. We may have been born, and from the first, to the first Sunday on earth, we were in church, and we've been in church every Sunday since then. If we weren't in church every Sunday since then, uh, mama would let us know about it, right? None of us are born Christians, though. We may be born into a Christian family, but all of us in our story have a BC part to our story, a before Christ part to our story. And that's really, really important for us to understand in a very churched area of our country. And before we know Jesus, God in his word tells us that it's not just that we're okay people who need to be made better. It's not that we're just a little rusty and need to be polished up. Before we know Jesus, before he's Lord, we are dead people in need of a resurrection. And in our deadness, we're defined by sin. It means means we just are living to feast on what our flesh tells us to feast on. We're living um, with us at the center, us as Lord, and this is just the very nature of who we are. We all have this BC reality. Now, it's really important because anytime we talk this directly about uh, being confronted about our sin and our lostness before Christ, there's something inside of us that wants to like push back and defend our goodness and to go, okay, like for verses one and two a Saul's story. I mean, the guy's a lunatic. I'm not that. I'm not going into people's houses, dragging out men, women, children, and bringing them so they can be uh, killed or arrested or whatever. I'm not that, in fact, if you talk to my coworkers, they'd say, "I'm a pretty good person." Really? Go talk to them. You can ask them, "No, right. If you talk to my family, they'd say, "You know what? I'm a pretty pretty, pretty, pretty good guy. I'm a pretty good woman. That there's something inside of us that always wants to, like, kind of at this point, defend our goodness. I love, and I've used this before, but I love what Tim Keller says on this. He says, Some of us rebel against God by being exceptionally bad. That's always very clear to us. We go, Yep, rebel. He goes, Others of us, some of us, rebel against God by being exceptionally good. What does he mean by that? He means if God is right, and the Bible says that every single one of us have a before Christ part of our life, meaning all of us are lost in our sin before we know Jesus. Some of us are working so hard to mitigate that by just trying to be the best version of the most moral person we can be. I'm just like, yes, God, I want to follow you. This is what Saul's doing. Saul is a super religious guy here. He thinks what he's doing is all to the glory of God. He really believes that. He's after a righteousness in which he's building, thinking that these crazy Jesus followers are are, are diluting the true faith. This is what he's doing. And I just think it's so important for us to acknowledge that uh, all of us in here before Jesus are rebels. And some of us, our rebellion is so evident to all because we're just like, just living with reckless abandon, others of us, the more dangerous rebellion is that which is not evident. Is that which your teachers go, man, that's a model student. And your boss goes, that's a model employee. And your family goes, dad is just a really great guy. And in all of your moral goodness, you still don't know Jesus and you're separated from him, dead in sin and defined by sin. And now I'd say all this, you're like, What an encouraging word this morning. (laughs) I say all this because it's so important as Saul's conversion unfolds, we will never be converted. We'll never go from old life to new life until we understand there was an old life. We'll never go from death to life until we understand we are dead without him. And so, so often when we present the gospel message, we just go, Jesus, he came and he died. And and they're going, cool, great. They don't know why he had to come and die. We have to talk about why he had to come and die because we were dead people in need of a resurrection. And what Luke is doing here in verses 1 and 2, he goes, let me remind you who Saul was. Let me remind you who Saul was. Let me remind you who Saul was. Now, it's really, really bad news that we're dead before Jesus. Here's why. Dead people can't bring themselves back to life. Dead people can't put the spiritual paddles back on the spiritual heart to shock it back to life. We can't do it. We're hopeless to enter the rescuer. Now, as he went on his way, verse 3, he approached Damascus Now, the men who were traveling with him, they stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Saul leaves Jerusalem and he's walking north to Damascus, and he believes what he's doing. He believes he's on a mission to the glory of God. He believes he's making a false religion pay. He believes that what he's doing is all out of zeal, pure zeal for God. And as he's walking on this road north to Damascus, all of a sudden, right there in his path, Jesus intercepts him. And when Jesus intercepts him in his mercy, he puts Saul flat on his back. And when Jesus intercepts him in his mercy, he makes him blind. Jesus blinds Saul so Saul can finally see. And what I love about this is Saul is not even a seeker here. Saul's not walking to Damascus going, you know, I'm really interested in understanding more of what it means to have Jesus be Lord of my life, and I want to investigate this more. Saul is not a seeker here. Saul does not even decide for Christ here. Saul's walking into a city to persecute Christians. And Jesus, out of his irresistible grace, puts him flat on his back and says, Saul, guess what? You're mine. And I'm so thankful that our Savior in his mercy does this because in my flesh, I would never decide for Christ. In my flesh, I would never become like a seeker of him without him working in my heart to draw me to himself because I would just keep seeking myself. If you left it up to my heart, you know who I'd decide for? I'd decide for Brock every time. Who do you want to be Lord today, Brock? Brock. And Jesus and his goodness. He just steps right in Saul's path and he puts him flat on his back and he blinds him so that Saul can finally see. Number two, Jesus meets us in our deadness and he confronts us in our sin. Jesus meets us in our deadness. Jesus is the only one who can look on a dead person and who can raise that dead person to life. And how he does this is as he meets us and as he intersects the path of our life, he confronts us in our sin. He finally, for the first time, we're walking and we're living in life and we just think we're living it for the glory of self and for whatever we want in the moment. And Jesus reveals to us, hey, that sin, I call that sin and that sin is what's destroying your life and that sin is what's separating you from me and he confronts us in this. And from this day forward, Jesus is going to call all the shots of Saul's life. From this point right here, he says, hey, Saul, guess what? Get up, go into the city and I'll tell you what to do. Jesus is Lord. Now, I just, a question here. Um, Jesus will do whatever it takes to reveal our lostness, our deadness, to confront us in our sin so that we will come to know him as Lord. Um, He will use pleasant blessings in our life to woo us to himself. He will use painful circumstances in our life to win us to himself. He'll do whatever it takes So that we finally see the dead end of the walking down the life of sin separated from him forever. And I just, some of you walk in here today and you feel like an anvil has just got dropped on your life in the last week or the last couple weeks or the last couple months. And the the weight of the anvil is just sitting on you all of the time. It's sitting on your family. Um, Is it possible that that anvil may just be an instrument of the grace of God in your life to just uh, woo you and win you to himself, to draw you to himself so that you will submit to Jesus as Lord. Why do I say that? Um, He went to the extreme of blinding Saul here for three days that Saul could finally see. And he'll do whatever it takes in our life for us to finally turn, to go, I'm dead, I am dead. There's nothing I can do, Lord. I'm dead. Rescue this dead guy. And he does. Now, really neat part of the story here. You'd think that um, Jesus would step into his path, and all the conversation would just be between Saul and Jesus, and who else does Jesus need in the process of uh, Saul's redemptive story here. But look at what happens in verse 10. It says, Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. So there's a guy in Damascus, Ananias. Um, I think it's so interesting that when Jesus appears before Saul, he goes, Saul, Saul. And Saul goes, who are you, Lord? When, G- when, uh, when Jesus calls out to Ananias, Ananias, he goes, here I am, Lord. You have a, a willing follower of Jesus here, and he goes, okay, here's what I need you to do. There's a guy, uh, go over to Straight Street. There's a guy in a house over there. His name's Saul Tarsus. I want you to go over there. I want you to lay your hands on him because he's blind, and uh, Ananias goes, Lord, that's so funny. I swear I heard you say you want me to go to this guy named Saul Atarsis. He goes, yeah, that's what I said. If you're Ananias, you're going, this is a suicide mission. I know what this guy's done. I know what he's done in Jerusalem. I know why he's coming up here. A uh, Word has preceded him why he's coming up here. God is, he, I, I might as well just bind my own wrist, walk into a prison cell, slam the door, and throw the keys out where I can't reach them. And the Lord says, Ananias, go. And Al- Ananias departs. Ananias goes in. Verse 17, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. In the story of the conversion of Saul, you often have three players that are talked about. Jesus, or sorry, two players, Jesus and Saul. Often a third player is forgotten and his name is Ananias. What a privilege Ananias gets here. What a privilege that he could have gone, Lord, no, no, I ain't ain't doing it. Not doing that. I'll go to to Crooked Street, but I ain't going to Straight Street. I'll go to a guy named Maul, but not a guy named Saul. Not doing it. And what privilege would he have missed out on in the history of the Christian church had he not. Third point, for those of us in here who already know Jesus, Jesus uses his followers to play a part in calling people to a new life. Think about the awesome privilege we get. If we believe theologically what the scriptures teach, before we knew Jesus, we were dead. Now we have this new life. And it's not only like a new life while we live the years we have on this earth here. It's a new life that stretches for eternity with him forever. And now, instead of God just going, yep, and I'll take care of winning all the rest of the lost humanity to you. Like, you just enjoy your new life. He actually looks on us. And not as, um, not as you know where I just totally botched it in first service? I'm always so transparent with you guys, you know? <laughs> I made it in first service feel like it's like this duty we have. Go share the gospel. You know, I can be really bad at that. Like, I got Exhorter coach voice down. Um, And just between services, the Spirit of God going like, you don't have to make it like, go do that. Like, what a privilege we get. What a privilege we get to talk to our lost brother about Jesus. What a privilege we get to walk across the Starbucks and say, can I tell you about the guy who rescued my life? What an awesome privilege that we get. And now sometimes we'll witness to people who don't see the privilege in it that we do, and they'll go, "Hey, weirdo, I just want to drink my tall blonde rose from Starbucks. Can you go back to the other table?" Sure. And yet sometimes they'll go, "You know, I've been searching out the Bible myself, and I've been trying to understand what in the world does it really mean to follow this Jesus. And um, you've just clarified for me what that means. I want Jesus Lord of my life. What a privilege!" But like if we believe theologically what these scriptures says, that literally life and death hangs in the balance, I, wa- I don't, I don't want to be afraid anymore to cross the street and talk to my neighbors about that. And I don't want to be afraid anymore to cross a Starbucks and talk to some random stranger about that. And I don't want to be afraid anymore to talk to the, my coworkers about that. Um, I don't want to be afraid anymore to, to cross the hallway and talk to the kid with the locker across from me who doesn't have any friends and no one ever talks to him. We get a privilege. We get a privilege. We carry around with us everywhere we go um, the, this, this treasure in a jar of clay, this treasure of the good news of the gospel to say, hey, guess what? I was dead, and I, man, my life has been resurrected. Um, I'm ad-libbing over here, so it's about to get dangerous, okay? Um, I've told you all before, and maybe you weren't here early on in our church, but I've told you before the story. As a kid, I was crossing my, the um, the road on my bike and i looked left and i didn't look right <laughs> and i i hit a car the car didn't hit me i hit the car i drove right into the side of the passing car flipped all over the bike and um i was probably i don't even know uh 7 8 um you're like what were your parents doing letting you ride i know they're crazy right and um and and i remember like you know the neighbor sees it they call the ambulance all these People there, and I remember. I still to this day, I can tell you, um, tall, slender, awesome mustache paramedic, first guy on the scene there. I was like seven. I remember this. Um, we live in a small town, about four thousand people. Um, he, I mean, he was the rescuer. He sweep, you know. He picked me up off the concrete, and he, and um, then every time as a little kid, I'd see that guy around town. You know, you'd be at McDonald's or something. And there, I would hi. He's like, yeah, do you remember? Uh, you know, and um, um, where in the world is the story going? Um, the, the appreciation and the awe of the guy who picked me off the asphalt and set me back on safe ground. Um, how much more, spiritually speaking, the one who swept us off out of our deadness, who stepped into my dead path and puts me on a path to eternal life, and now I go, can I just go tell everyone about that? What a privilege Ananias gets here. Now look, look at the beginning of Saul's new life. Verse 17, Ananias departed, he entered the house, laying his hands on him. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food he was strengthened. The scales fall away. The Spirit of God's filled Saul. The scales fall away. He's eating. He's going. Now, right away next week as we continue the story, he's just going to get after it for the glory of Christ. No delay. Like he's just going to get after it. He's going to go into synagogues and he's going to walk in the synagogue and everyone's going to go. Oh! And he's going to walk to the front. He's like, let me tell you about Jesus. And everyone's going to go, whoa. <laughs> the mission of the Christian church is just going to now explode across the known world. Why? Not, why? Not because Saul was just an okay person who's been now made a little bit better. Not because Saul wasn't just the best version of himself and now he's been polished up into the best version of himself. Saul was dead. And now he is alive. In C.S. Lewis's book, C.S. Lewis wrote a book. Do you know C.S. Lewis wrote a book? <laughs> he wrote a few of them. And uh, in his book, Surprised by Joy... Uh, The story of basically kind of the story of the journey of his life up to his conversion. So about birth through roughly 30 years old. He tells the story of how throughout the entirety of his life, God had been in a pursuit of him. From him as an atheist um, to him now as a theist. Not a Christian yet, just didn't believe in God, now believes in God. And to then... Him surrendering to the Lordship of Jesus Christ as a Christian. The very last chapter, and surprised by joy, the very last chapter, the chapter on conversion, the title of it, The Beginning. And I just want this fourth point. I want us to all understand this this morning, that we are completely made new the moment Christ is made Lord. Now, now please, I, um, know that the moment Jesus is Lord of your life, you have a new heart. You have a very new nature. You, <clears throat> things you used to like, find great joy in, you won't. And things you used to not find great joy in, like being at church, all of a sudden you do. Now, um, you carry into some of this new nature a little bit of the hangover of sin. Um, my wife leaned over in first service and told me something, and I kind of barked back at her. I'm like here I am, like ready to. Like, I'm, we're, we're worshiping. Like what? Tell me one of the songs we were just singing. Someone tell me. What a beautiful, what a beautiful name. Yeah, I know. Uh, what a beautiful name. It, where did that come from? Well, I carry into this new nature with Jesus this hangover of sin. But then the weird thing happens is you do that and immediately like conviction of the Holy Spirit sets in and you're gonna go if you if today is gonna be the first day. Jesus becomes Lord of your life, you're going to be like, what is this weight on my chest? (laughs) It's conviction. Because for the rest of our life now, in this new nature, this new walk with Jesus, He's going to just graciously, gently be molding you more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. It's an awesome thing He calls us to. And I love that C.S. Lewis calls it the beginning. And I'm just praying here. In a few moments, we're gonna we're gonna have a time of communion, and we're gonna have a time to remember the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. If you're serving communion, you can go to the back and get ready to serve that. And um, but as as those serving communion get ready to do that, keep keep your eyes on me here, um, because <clears throat> if you're here today, and you you might just know flat out that you walked in here not knowing Jesus, but you. You might have just been confused on all this. I, I don't know what I know about this Jesus thing. I just sense today God has some people in here who need what CS Lewis called the beginning. That maybe the first today is the first time that some you've ever heard someone say that there was a BC time to your life, meaning there was a before Christ time, and, they, and that God calls that time dead. It's dead time. We're dead in our sin. Or maybe you've already, always understood that because you were maybe brought up in like really legalist church, you're like, man, they, no, I get that. <laughs> they made sure I got that but maybe you've never understood that there was a rescuer rescuer who came to remedy all that. And like this part was so loud, you're dead in your sin. Today you need to hear there's a louder part to the story and he's able to raise you to life. And I just say if you're here, never bowed the knee to the lordship of Jesus Christ. You're like, that's such churchy. What are you, the lordship of Jesus? It just simply means this. Is today the day you're ready to have a new master? And if you say yes to that, I want you to understand something. Only God could produce that desire in your heart. If he wasn't drawing you to himself, you would have said, no, I'm pretty good with me as master. And if today's the day you're ready for a new master, here's what i just encourage you. Um, In a few moments, the ushers are gonna come. We're gonna take communion as a group of people. Communion's a time for those who have called Jesus Christ Lord already to remember the sacrifice Jesus made on the cross on their behalf. But what you're gonna find is there's a time of reflection before we do that. God tells us to search our heart, just to do some business with him, to confess sin, to get ready to take that. If today you're ready for the new master, Jesus, in that time, I would just encourage you as you sit there in your seat to just tell him that, Lord, I, I'm 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 done. I see that I'm I'm dead, and I'm ready for life. I'm ready for what C.S. Lewis called the beginning. If C.S. Lewis called it the beginning, like I'd say that guy got some stuff done before 30, you know. Like if he needed a beginning, I probably need a beginning too, right? I'm ready for that beginning. I want my life to really start today. I want to know you. No, I don't want to just know about you intellectually. I don't want to be able to recite the creedal statements about you. I want to know you. I want to know you. I just encourage you in your heart right there in a time of silence we're going to have before communion. Tell them that. And then I pray you'd be bold enough to tell someone else that. Like when you leave here today, if you came with someone, you came with dad for Father's Day, or you came with a neighbor because they invited you, like, you're going to go, you know, I don't even really know how to tell you this, but the guy up front said to tell you this, but um, I kind of knew I needed that new master thing today. Tell the Lord that today and then tell someone else that today. Like, why do I have to tell someone else? Because here's the deal: God has um, designed this walk with Jesus thing to be done in community with other people. So, if you leave here today and you just stay in isolation and go like, "I'm following Jesus now," um, Jesus followers in isolation just get eaten up. God has called us to surround ourselves with people, and the first thing you can do is say, "Can you help me in that?" Tell the Lord. You're ready for a new master now, and then tell someone else, so they, they can help you understand what it, what it even means to walk with master. New-